everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers, and we're talking about what you need to know as a law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Virginia. New cases, new statutes, uh, use of force, electronic evidence, search and seizure. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. It's great to have you here. This is an, a podcast designed for officers who want to do it right, who want to find ways to better strengthen and serve their communities and understand the law better so that they can uh, be uh, better officers. You don't often get those resources, and it's tough, it's challenging when your communities are cutting back on resources, but hopefully this is helpful to you. We've been talking a lot about electronic evidence, but today I want to talk about a particular case and search and seizure issues. I want to talk about a case called U.S. versus Curry. It's a brand new case from the Fourth Circuit, and uh, the Fourth Circuit just decided this case last July, in July 15th. They decided it en banc, so all of the justices together sitting made this decision. And it was a vociferous, it's a fractured, it's a very controversial ruling. Uh, and it's about what an officer can do when responding to a active shooting situation. There's been a shooting reported. Uh, it just happened in the last 30 seconds. You show up on scene. There's people running everywhere. It appears that somebody's been, been uh, injured, somebody's been shot. Uh, what can you do to uh, quickly assess the situation, make the situation safe, respond, and hopefully apprehend the shooter before they can hurt more people? And the Fourth Circuit really struggled with this and issued a ruling that you may not like, but I think you really have to know and understand, not just to understand what you can do in that situation, but really to understand where the Fourth Circuit is right now, both in the law of the Fourth Amendment, but also in their understanding of the political and social forces uh, that are in some ways tearing apart uh, the, the legal world and you know the rest of the world and law enforcement uh, right now. So we're going to talk a lot about just this one case today. As, any, as always with any Fourth Amendment case, with any search and seizure case, the facts of the case are really important. So I'm going to take a minute and talk to you about what the facts are. Um, you, this case starts with four officers who were driving around the neighborhood of a public housing complex in the city of Richmond. There have been recent, a lot of violence in this area recently. There's been six shootings in the last couple of weeks and two recent homicides in the last couple of weeks. So in view of this, the police department has signed these four officers to respond, to patrol this particular housing complex, this particular neighborhood. So they're on scene as soon as a shooting happens the next time and hopefully can respond before it gets out of hand or anyone else gets hurt or killed. These officers, while, while patrolling, hear five or six gunshots coming from the direction of this housing complex. And so they quickly respond to the location. As they're responding, two 911 calls quickly come in, and it's reported to them uh, that the, the shots are confirmed to be coming from the public housing complex, and the other 911 caller also confirms the gunshots. They get to the area within 35 seconds of the first shooting. So this is you know pretty fast work. As soon as they're pulling up, they can see people running away from the scene, including one person who appears to be favoring one of his arms like he's been shot. Now they get out of their cars, and there's people running everywhere, and it's dark, so they take out their flashlights and they start shining their flashlights on people to see who, if anybody, has a gun. They ask the people who were running away from this shooting to lift up their shirts so the officers can see whether or not they've got guns in their waistbands. And they get to the defendant, Mr. Curry, who refuses to lift his shirt. 
seeing that he's refused to lift his shirt, they think, well, this guy may have a gun then. Uh, they go to restrain him. They go to pat him down. He refuses. A struggle ensues. They find a gun on him, and they arrest him. Um, Curry is a felon. He's a convicted felon, and they take the case to federal court. Now, Curry's not the shooter. They don't ever find the shooter. Uh, but they only find Mr. Curry. Mr. Curry's got this gun, and he's a felon. They prosecute him in federal court for possession of a firearm by convicted felon, and he moves to suppress the search of his person. Now, the district court, they get the judge gets to this issue, and the judge performs a pretty simple Fourth Amendment analysis, right? He says, all right, uh, there's generally three levels of police citizen encounters, right? There's consent, investigative detention, and arrest. This is not a consensual encounter. And no one argues that the officers have probable cause. So it's got to be some kind of investigative detention in the eyes of the district court. Well, if it's an investigative detention, it has to be based upon reasonable suspicion. Reasonable suspicion is based upon individualized suspicion, facts that are unique to this particular case, unique to this defendant, this unique to this individual, that says to the police, this individual with whom I'm dealing is armed. So he says, all right, when the officers are fanning out and they've got their uh, flashlights out, where, what gives them the belief that he's got a gun that gives them an authority to say to him, lift up your shirt and let me see under your shirt? Well, there isn't any, right? There's nothing specific about him other than the fact that in general, there's been a shooting in the area. People are running away. He's one of the people who's running away. It's a high crime area. Uh, so that's it. So that, that's not individualized in the eyes of the district court. Ordering him to lift up his shirt was not lawful and therefore consequently uh, because he didn't lift up his shirt, that didn't add any authority to them to get into a struggle with him, to make him uh, submit to that pat down. And so the district court suppresses the evidence. The government appeals to the Fourth Circuit. Now, it's important to understand how appeals work. So I do want to take a second and explain how the whole appeals process works so you understand how this case ends up the way it does. When you appeal to either the Virginia Court of Appeals or the Fourth Circuit, you don't get to every judge. There is in the, in the Fourth Circuit, there's 15 judges who uh, sit in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. And when you appeal, generally speaking, you only get three of those judges to hear your case. They're sort of randomly selected. So, um, you know, how a case turns out might depend upon which three judges you draw. But most cases, you know, are, are generally speaking, you know, not too controversial. So uh, the people are generally satisfied that the system seems to work. And we have the same system for the Court of Appeals of Virginia. You don't get all the judges. You just get three judges. But sometimes an opinion is reached or a decision is reached that is so controversial that uh, while you might not want to appeal it immediately to the Virginia Supreme Court or the U.S. Supreme Court, you want to get a hearing of more than just the three judges that you got on your draw uh, the first time. And so you can go back to the court and say, I don't think that these three judges represent the opinion of the full court. I want the entire court to sit and hear this decision, the full court. And in the Fourth Circuit, that would be all 15 judges. And a number have, of pretty controversial issues have come before the en banc. They call it en banc, um, which is um, French, I think, or Latin. French, um, in the last few years, and one of them was, for example, the the uh, the ruling that the Virginia interdiction system, the system for um, making it unlawful to possess alcohol if you're habitual, if you're declared to be a habitual drunkard in Virginia, that overturning of that statutory system, that was an en banc ruling. This is also an en banc ruling. So the um, U.S. versus Curry government 
appeals to the Fourth Circuit, <clears throat> and three judges are picked, and these three judges issue a ruling. Now, I'm going to get to the en banc ruling, the 15 judges ruling the second, but I want to talk about what the panel decides, the three judges decide first, before I get to the full ruling of the Fourth Circuit. Because their ruling is really interesting and teaches us a lot and sets up what the ultimate ruling is. So the en banc, the three judges who first hear this case, they reverse suppression. They find that the evidence should have been admitted uh, and that the officer's conduct was lawful under the Fourth Amendment. And they rely on a U.S. Supreme Court case called Edmund. And what they rule in this case is the Fourth Circuit rules, the, the, three, the three judges rule, that the limited stop and search by the officers was narrowly circumscribed by the exigencies, the emergencies present, uh, and, and that were, and therefore the search, the stop and search was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment because of the important public interests of citizens and police in this situation. Now, Edmund was a different case. It didn't deal with these facts, but Edmund had talked about the fact that roadway searches without reasonable suspicion could be justified in situations like an imminent terrorist attack or a dangerous criminal who's likely to flee by, re by way of a particular route. Um, unlike, it's not like a regular roadblock, but a situation where there's, you know, where there's a desire to control crime generally, but instead a desire to uh, deal with a particular criminal in a particular situation. And they sort of liken it to a situation, and there's been other cases in other jurisdictions, for example, where um, there was a bank robbery suspect, and a bank robber is fleeing from a bank. They know what direction he's traveling from. Um, he's got like a GPS inside of the money that he's stolen, so the officers can say he's in this particular area. So officers stop and cordon off that particular block where they've narrowed him down. They hold the people on the scene, which is a Fourth Amendment intrusion, right? It's a seizure of them. But it's not uh, a seizure. It's not a seizure based on individualized reasonable suspicion, but the fact that they know that somewhere in this block is the person who robbed this bank. It's an armed person who's uh, who they can identify because they got the GPS signal coming from the money that he's stolen, and he's dangerous because he just robbed a bank. Um, so they try to hold everybody there until they can get uh, a more specific description and a more specific location of the bad guy, so they can individually search and seize him. And so here the officers are not conducting, and it's important to the three judges in this case, the officers are not conducting a full search of the of Mr. Curry. They're not doing a full pat-down of him. All they're saying to everybody who's fleeing from the scene is, everybody, lift up your shirts. We just want to see if you have a gun on you. And so other circuits, for example, other jurisdictions have said, well, again, the need to prevent terrorist attacks allows in certain circumstances limited searches without individualized suspicion in subways and airports. Um, and so here, again, we, you know, this situation is one where we know there was just a sh shooting. There's a, an active threat to, to the public safety. Um, it's a limited circumstance. This is not ordinary crime control. We're not dealing with a theft from Sears. We're not dealing with somebody who um, is, you know, just dealing drugs generally. But it's an imminent attack or a dangerous criminal, something that's just happened. The court cautions requiring perfect confidence would ignore the exigent circumstances that the officers faced. They're trying to stop somebody from being shot. And it's not here in this case that just the perception of the exigency, the fact the officers feel like there's a danger. Again, it has to be objectively reasonable. What the officer found, again, it is objectively reasonable here. And the officers' actions, again, are limited. They're not searching everybody. They're not breaking into houses, for example, and just searching houses. Um, it's limited to the nature of the exigency. 
So the court in this case then says, all right, based upon the severity of the threat, which is the presence of multiple gunshots, which were reasonably perceived as gunshots, the tailored nature of the officer's response, which was limited in time, it was a few seconds after the shooting, and space, it's right after the shooting had taken place, right in the area of the shooting. And the intrusion was very minimal. All that they asked to do, they didn't ask to frisk everybody. They simply said, lift up your waistband, let me see your waistband. If that's all that they did, then the court said that that was a limited, reasonable uh, um, search of individuals based upon the circumstances, <clears throat> right? Because remember, the Fourth the fourth Amendment of the Constitution doesn't set up that, that sort of consent investigated attention and arrest breakdown. That's something that the courts have invented. What the Fourth Amendment says is the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated. So the court here goes back to the original sort of idea of the Constitution and says, is this a reasonable search and seizure under the circumstances? And the court finds that it is. So that's the ruling of the panel in this case. Now, the panel issues its ruling on September 5th of 2019, and we get our ruling from the entire Fourth Circuit in July of 2020. And the entire Fourth Circuit sits, they hear the case, so all 15 judges hear the case, and they issue their opinion, <clears throat> and they rule that the search, they agree with the district court that the search was unlawful, and they suppress the evidence. The opinion is really interesting. Um, it is a nine to six ruling. So nine judges believe the evidence should have been suppressed and six judges believe that the evidence should not have been suppressed, that the evidence should have been admitted, that the officer's actions were lawful. And I'm going to talk about the ruling of the court in general, and then I'm going to talk about the individual judge, judge's opinions, because a lot of judges wrote opinions in this case. And we can learn a lot, I think, <clears throat> not just about the law from these opinions, but also from where these judges are coming from and how they view both the law and the law in the context of modern society and politics. <clears throat> so the ruling of the court is that the exigent circumstances in the situation do not justify the suspicionless seizure. So I want to back up for a second. You know, we're talking about exigent circumstances, and I want to be clear that the discussion of exigent circumstances in this case is not a discussion of the exigent circumstances doctrine in general. This is really, they talk about exigent circumstances, but they're really talking about what's called the special needs doctrine. You know, when we talk about exigent circumstances, we're really talking about uh, situations where officers have probable cause and are entering almost always a home based upon probable cause plus some kind of emergency, some kind of exigency that causes them to have to enter without a search warrant. Because you always need to have a search warrant to enter a home or an arrest warrant unless you have consent. Um, but if you have exigent circumstances, then if you have probable cause, you may be able to enter that home. That's generally speaking the exigent circumstances exception. There is another kind of exigent circumstance that doesn't talk about probable cause at all. And that's just simply where I have a pure emergency, like the house is on fire, right? So I don't have probable cause of a crime, but I do have some, you know, probable cause of some emergency, some need, something that's going on that's a threat, that's a threat to life or safety, so that I have to go into this house, break the threshold of the Fourth Amendment, do what the Fourth Amendment would normally say I have to have a warrant to do. Um, and, and again, we're always talking, almost always talking about houses in exigent circumstance cases. Here we're talking about a pat-down of an individual 
And so really we're talking about sometimes is what they call the special needs doctrine, which says sometimes I need to act without probable cause or maybe even reasonable suspicion if there's some need that drives my need to seize somebody or search somebody. So anyway, this case, the court looks at the uh, exigent circumstances of the case and they say that there's no basis in this case, not sufficient basis to, to uh, seize Mr. Curry without individualized suspicion. Here, they focus on the fact that the defendant is being seized in an open field. There's multiple escape routes. They only suspect that the area is the scene of the crime. And so the court writes, allowing officers to bypass, bypass the individualized suspicion requirement based on the information that they had here, which was the sound of gunfire and the general location where it may have been located, would, and they, this is them talking, would completely cripple a Fourth Amendment protection and create a dangerous precedent. Remember the district court here, like the district court, they say, well, the problem is, what reason do we think that Curry is the shooter or that Curry has a gun? He's just one of the people who's running away. Suspicion has to be individualized. And so they look at the law about, well, what are we supposed to do in these situations where we have an active shooter or a terrorist attack? And they say, well, honestly, there isn't a lot of law and we don't really have good guidance. Now, they're not going to give us good guidance in this case, but they are acknowledging that there isn't good guidance. But they do say, again, that there have to be clear and limiting principles. So, for example, um, you know, again, if we have situations where officers have set up a roadblock after a recent crime, um, that's been the immediate aftermath of a known crime and where officers have isolated a geographic area with clear boundaries or a discrete group of people where they're doing minimally intrusive searches. Now that you may say, well, that's what this case is. It's a discrete you know, geographic area with minimally intrusive searches. But here, the, the court doesn't like the fact that only a few people are being searched. Now you might say, well, there's only a couple of officers on the scene. How are you supposed to effectively cordon off the area and coordinate a you know, an objective search of people who are leaving this particular geographic area with clear boundaries. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to do that until you have sufficient officers in the scene. And that might really be what the answer is, um, because the court here is saying that having a few individual officers just sort of pick who gets pat down and who doesn't get patted down is not permissible under the Fourth Amendment. Now, they agree with, for example, you know, vehicular checkpoints. Uh, if you've got a situation where there's been a recent shooting or a recent attack or terrorist attack and a vehicular checkpoint is set up, it's reasonable as long as it's objectively clear that that's, a, that's the direction of travel that somebody who might have committed that offense is leaving. And you have some objective criteria and minimally intrusive uh, for who's getting uh, subjected to these seizures and maybe you know limited searches and the search is limited in scope, less than a pat down, less than a real search. The court did not give any weight or really very little weight to the multiple murders and shootings that had just happened. They wrote in this case, and this is the court's opinion, the demographics of those who re reside in high crime neighborhoods often consist of racial minorities and individuals disadvantaged by their social and economic circumstances. And so because of that, the court was concerned that if they said, well, all these recent murders and shootings, uh, if they gave a lot of weight to it, then that would allow a suspicionless seizure of individuals who live in those neighborhoods, which would disproportionately affect people who 
um, uh, live in those neighborhoods. So again, the emphasis here is that the court does not like the arbitrary use of discretion, the sort of unfettered, uncontrolled use of discretion of the officers who are getting out of the car and picking and choosing who gets patted down or who gets not even patted down, but who has to, who's given the order to have their shirt lifted up and examined. The court seems to think, and they say this uh, explicitly, our ruling today will not hinder the police's ability to forcibly to forcefully respond to emergencies such as active shooter situations. And in addition to that, they say, we're not saying that if you arrive on the scene of a homicide, you can't rely on the exigent circumstances exception to the warrant. Um, you could potentially conduct warrantless searches of the area to see if there's other victims or if there's a killer on the premises. Um, they just didn't think that it was done right in this case. So obviously you might be thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't really answer any questions for me. It just raises a lot of questions. Um, the court spent less time, I think, talking about how this doctrine could be applied in a real situation that you might encounter and a lot of time talking about why it was important to limit police discretion in these circumstances. And there were a lot of concurring opinions written by other judges. So to help you kind of understand what's going on here, I'm going to tell you about some of the concurring opinions written by some other judges. And um, we'll have to put off the exit and emergency situation conversation for another time. So Judge Gregory writes a concurrence in this case, and in his concurrence, he writes about two Americas. And this is something that you'll see uh, Judge uh, Wilkinson come back to in his dissent. Judge Gregory and Judge Wilkinson both agree that there are, in a, there are two Americas. In Judge Gregory's eyes, one is, what, one is, is a world in which there is a long history of black and brown communities feeling unsafe in police presence. He quotes James Baldwin and repeats James Baldwin's statement that the police are simply the hired enemies of this population. Now, he just gives that quote. He doesn't give any context to it. So it's not clear that Judge Gregory is literally saying that the police are simply the hired enemies of, the, of this population. But he also doesn't qualify that statement either. He describes a central paradox of, Afri of the African-American experience, which is the simultaneous over and under policing of crime. So as I said, uh, a lot of the court's opinion in this case comes from individualized criticism. They didn't like the way that the officers exercised their discretion in this case. And Judge Gregory is one of those officers, one of those judges who didn't like that. He specifically criticizes the officers' decisions, and he reviews the body camera videos and notices, notice, noticed in his opinion that the citizens in the area had actually attempted to identify the direction of the gunshots the officer. They, there were people who were obviously people yelling all over the place. You've been to one of these scenes before. Um, the, they, some of the people are yelling, hey, this is where the guy is who's doing the shooting, or this is where the gunshots came from. Judge Gregory wrote, the officers ignored the assistance, and the shooter got away. Like most citizens, it is likely that the residents of Creighton Court community do not want police officers to be tough on crime or weak on crime. They want them to be smart on crime. Judge Wynn files a concurrence as well, and he doesn't like the way the police acted in this case. He attacks the science and the metrics of predictive policing. So remember I told you that the four officers were assigned here because of the shooting and homicides that had just happened. 
Judge Wynn rejects the facts in this case, the, the, sort of the concerns about the shootings, um, and the and the you know the idea that the person was running away who might have been shot. He says all that stuff is conjured by the government, and contends this case is nothing more than gunshots in a high crime area. In a footnote, he also refers to the video, and he he again looks at the video and says the record the video record in this case demonstrates the belligerent humiliating and capricious nature of such stops, subjecting people in disadvantaged areas to too permeating police surveillance while declining to do the same for those in wealthier communities relegates the less fortunate to second-class status in the eyes of the law. Judge Wynn has written in other cases before, and he continues an argument here as well, that he's concerned about a line of jurisprudence in this circuit that lessens constitutional protections for those who choose to carry and inherently dangerous instrumentalities such as firearms. He doesn't like the fact that the court is willing to allow officers to pat people down and seize firearms in circumstances where uh, all a person's doing is carrying a gun, which Judge Wynn seems to think is, is, is constitutionally protected and the court is not sufficiently protecting in their cases. Judge Diaz files another concurrence, and Judge Diaz, he's the only judge in the majority to talk about that Edmund case I talked about where the court said that sometimes, you know, a, a terrorist attack or a recent violent crime, a recent shooting or attack might justify uh, a, a search based on less than reasonable suspicion. He says, yes, under Edmund, police would be justified in detaining a potential suspect to whom they lacked individualized suspicion as part of an effort to apprehend a dangerous criminal at large. But again, they have to, it has to be narrowly tailored. Um, it cannot involve the use of discretion, and it has to be systematic. It has to be according to certain rules and, 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 and a system. And he complains here that the officers failed to see whether there are other people uh, lingering in the area or, or looking to see where the suspect actually might be or round up everybody first, um, including those located closest to the shooting situation. And again, I understand that on the other side of this recording, you might be screaming, uh, and saying, you know, you're four officers showing up at the scene. How are you supposed to magically do all this stuff and, you know, perform all these uh, amazing, you know, all this, some kind of amazing objective system? Um, I'm just telling you what the judges are writing. Uh, judge Thacker writes a concurrence. He agrees as well, and Judge Keenan joins him. Uh, judge, in their view, the use of predictive policing, and this is their writing, is little more than racial prof profiling writ large. And they cite a number of uh, writings by the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and others. They repeat that historic crime data is biased through the pr practice of racialized enforcement of law. And thus, predictive policing will inherently re reinforce and perpetuate this, this structural racism. They also write, and again I'm quoting, it is individual police officers, not a computer program, who abuse their authority by violating the constitutional rights of citizens such as Billy Curry, the defendant in this case, based on the simple fact that they committed the offense of walking while black. Which is what Judge Thacker, I think, is saying, and Judge uh, Keenan is saying, is uh, the reason that the officers stopped Mr. Curry. So... What's the other side, right? What's the other argument? There's six judges who don't agree with these positions. Um, those are some pretty strong opinions. What are the dissenting judges right? Well, Judge Wilkinson writes a very lengthy dissent. And like Judge Gregory, he writes of two Americas. He writes, in one America where citizens possess the means to hire private security or move to, a safer neighborhood, move to safer neighborhoods, the impact of judicial barriers to effective law enforcement may be minimal. 
In another America, though, people have no choice but to endure the unintended consequences of our missteps as crime moves to fill the vacuum left by the progressive disablement of the law's protections. He warned, and he's writing again here, we are in danger of making law enforcement in our dispossessed communities a thankless task. I'm going to quote him again. He writes, and this is a quote, the sole practical takeaway from the majority opinion is that police officers on the scene of an unfolding emergency must sit and wait for identifying information rather than use discretion and judgment to get control of a possibly deadly event, lest the prevention of a homicide violate the Constitution. This injunction entirely saps predictive policing of its potency and effectively forecloses the trade-off faster responses for fuller information that innumerable cities have opted for in making their streets safer. This is a mistake. So envisioning sort of what he describes as the abandonment of inner cities by stripping departments of what he describes as effective public safety programs and what he describes as a judicial rebuke for even the most professional and minimally intrusive uh, police work, Judge Wilkinson writes, couple an area's rise in crime with a lack of respect shown by courts for even good police work, and you have an America where gated communities will be safe enough and dispossessed communities will be left to fend increasingly for themselves. And he concludes, and again, quote, the majority has delivered a gut punch to predictive policing. As the facts here so dramatically show, the effect of its ruling is not to disarm the criminal, but to disable the officer. The majority proceeds under the illusion that the law enforcement officers will always be there, just raring to charge in. But that is not true, and it is not what happened here. Yet bound to this false premise, the majority fails to glimpse the reality that continued reversals of this kind will lead to the absence of officers in those very areas where, for good and humane reasons, their presence is needed most. Um, Judge Richardson wrote a dissent, and five judges joined him. He criticized Judge Diaz for, uh, remember Judge Diaz was the one who said, oh, I don't like the fact that the officers use discretion, it should be more systematic, it should be more objective, it should be, you know, they should have cordoned off the whole area. Um, he criticizes Judge Diaz for, for contending the police couldn't act without a roadblock or better yet a perimeter. And he writes, the threat presented here did not afford officers time to study the problem await further information, and formulate a discretionless programmatic response, perhaps after forming a committee. So he expressed specific concern, and it might be concerns that you're thinking about, right? He writes about, and I'm quoting here, say law enforcement learns of a shooting in one of several buildings in a complex. Under the majority's rule, the officers would be constitutionally prohibited from stopping and demanding raised hands from fleeing individuals just because police have doubts as to who to search, there's no discrete group, and no ability to cordon off all modes of egress, so no controlled area. Wouldn't it be reasonable for officers to do what they can to respond to the situation as it evolves? Here's another situation. Again, this is a quote. What if gunshots erupt during a crowded marathon? Today's opinion will likely prevent officers from simply instructing individuals to raise their hands, unless, of course, they can pinpoint a discrete group or exert control over the entire area. And lastly, he again, again this is a quote, or take the apparent sounds of shots being fired at a music festival with thousands in, attendant, in attendance, absent uh, abundant modes of egress, 
and only so many officers operating with so much time. That scenario presents neither a controlled geographic group nor a discrete group of people. Must the officers sit on their hands until enough backup arrives to cover all exits and establish a secure perimeter? Right, and so you think about the Las Vegas shooting. Um, you know, obviously, you don't have necessarily enough officers in the scene when that shooting starts. There's, like he describes, abundant modes of egress. So, how do you apply this sort of objective, uh, systematic approach with individualized or relatively individualized suspicion in that situation? He concludes, today's decision is a mistake. It will now be harder than ever to safeguard our communities from the most serious of threats. Wherever our citizens and officers find themselves, music festivals, houses of worship, or main streets, they will now be less safe. So a really contentious, really fractured ruling from the Fourth Circuit, it doesn't give you any answers other than what the court you know, ruled is lawful in this particular case. But I hope it does, at least for today's purposes, and we only have a certain amount of time in this podcast, give you a sense of where the court is coming from and also where we are in modern Fourth Amendment jurisprudence with respect to concerns for individualized suspicion, but also concerns for what is the Fourth Amendment protecting. And when you hear these arguments about over-policing or under-policing, you know, are the police supposed to not do anything or are they supposed to do something? Um, you know, what are the tensions there? What are the fights about? And what is it, what's in the minds of these justices? So that's all we're going to do today. Uh, that's all I got for you. I hope you like the podcast. I hope you're finding it interesting and, and, and uh, helpful. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Uh, I love the reviews you guys have been giving me, uh, especially on iTunes. It helps. If you have another uh, podcast app you want me to try to get uh, the podcast onto that you like using, please let me know. I'm trying to get this into places people can listen. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. Uh, we're on SoundCloud. But we can go other places if you find them more useful. But that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.